Well, we're in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We're in a little series called God's Way of Righteousness. And that's in a bigger series, the book of Romans. We've been in the book of Romans now for 92 weeks. And uh, we'll continue in the book of Romans until we finish it. Uh, So we got uh, a little ways to go yet. But um, hopefully you've enjoyed our time in this book. I know when we started, I, I mentioned to you that there's going to be some things we run into, some theological implications, some other things that are going to be very difficult to comprehend in our own minds. And sometimes we just have to let God be God and admit that we're not and say, okay, it doesn't make sense logically to me, but that's one of the things that, that I'll allow God to um, deal with in the end. And so as we've been going through this series, um, you know, we live in such a... Uh, I guess a pluralistic society today. Um, I mean, if you even suggest that, suggest the idea that uh, that some religions could be wrong. I mean, you're really, uh, it's almost immoral to say those kind of things today in our society, in some people's minds. Um, let alone say that the way of Christ is a better way and and the only way, uh, people's eyes tend to roll back in their heads and they kind of go into all kinds of weird um, mental state when you mention those kind of things. Uh, but the fact is simply this, beloved. Any religion is wrong that does not call us out of our own inadequate self-righteousness. Christ calls us from our own self-righteousness to faith in him, in his work on the cross. And that's why Paul is spending so much time. A lot of the things I'm going to share with you today out of this text, verses 5 through 10, you've heard it before. And it seems almost like Paul keeps on rewinding and going over and over and over and you know, it's very easy to say, well, you know what, I've already taught on this. We're just going to skip over. We can't do that because we teach through books of the Bible. And so we're going to spend some time right here in Romans chapter 5 or 10 verses 5 to 10. But this, this, what Paul is about to say to us in this little paragraph is extremely, extremely important. And he's kind of prepared us for this, what we're going to look at today. And it's, it's really part of a longer section that actually begins all the way back at the end of chapter 9 in verse 30. And it runs all the way through the end of chapter 10. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to explain to us and to his readers of this letter that the unbelief of his countrymen, his fellow Jews, is not God's fault, but it's theirs. And since the gospel has been communicated to them, it's their fault if they don't believe. Now remember, Paul has been teaching us that salvation is what? It's of grace. It's by the sovereign hand of God. It's something that God does in our lives for us. And so when you stop and you put it in that perspective, a lot of Paul's fellow countrymen and and fellow listeners and hearers of his teaching were saying, well, wait a minute, if you're saying salvation is all of God and and you're saying that God's promises to the Jews are valid and he'll, he'll never go back on his promises, then why aren't all the Jews believing in 
Christ for salvation? Why are so many Jewish brethren still lost? And you see that in Paul's heart. He says in in chapter 9, even if I could give up my own salvation, he can't. He knows that you can't transfer your salvation to somebody else. So he's using that as an illustration to show you his heart. But he says, man, if I could lose my salvation and give it to one of my fellow countrymen, I would be willing to do that. I mean, Paul's a bigger man than, than me in that area. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not giving up my salvation for nobody. Nobody. Because what lies in the balance? Eternity. I love my wife dearly. But dear, you're on your own on this one. Can't help you. You either know the Lord or you don't, right? Because I'm not giving you my salvation. (laughs) Not going to happen. And see, this this is the thing we need to understand. What lies in the balance? All eternity. And what this paragraph does here, what Paul tries to bring to the table for us, he's really laying out a contrast. He's laying out a contrast by what Paul calls a righteousness that is by law and a righteousness that is by faith. There's only those two. You can't come up with anything else. No one can ever be saved by a religion of works. The Bible is very clear about that. I don't care how hard you try. I don't care how many times you come to church. I don't care how many times you read your Bible or say prayers before your dinner or or witness and feed the, the homeless and the lost. All that does not mean anything in light of your own salvation. God does not look at those good things that you do and say, wow, you know, this this month he really went out of his way to, boy, he really did a lot of things and, you know, I'm going to give him a couple of kudos. No, doesn't work that way. The Bible says that if you would be saved, you must give up any thought of contributing to your own salvation by what you do and instead trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. I always tell people the difference between being religious and being a born-again Christian, it comes down to two words. Those who are religious, I can describe their religion in one little word. Do. D-O. I don't name any world religion. They're judged by what they do. I know growing up as a Catholic, I was judged by what I would do for the church. Whether I went to confession, whether I went to mass, whether I did this, whether I did that. And boy, if you didn't do it, what happened? Boy, the guilt of the church came down on you hard. I mean, there are people still dealing with guilt issues that are even saved out of the Catholic Church as a result of all that. But we need to be reminded that a born-again Christian, one who knows and is secured by the work of Christ... Their, their relationship with God could be boiled down to one word, four-letter word, D-O-N-E. What was done for them. That's what you're trusting in. That's the first question you can ask somebody when you meet them in a restaurant or you meet them out and about, maybe on vacation. Oh, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian too. Really? 
You're a Christian? Yeah. First question. Why do you think you're a Christian? If their question is answered in a way of, well, you know, I mean, I was born in the church. I mean, my mom and dad, my dad was a preacher. I mean, I was born in the front pew. You know, I mean, well, maybe not born there, but I mean, I practically lived there. So if that's the answer, that's the wrong answer. Well, I've been going to church. What do you mean? How dare you ask me that question? If, If you get that kind of an answer, that's a red flag. If you, if you get anything other than, you know what? It's by the grace of God that I am saved. By the grace of God. One commentator says this. Christ charged himself with doing. He has left us only the believing. That is, is so important for us to understand. Christ charged himself with doing. He went to the cross for us. We don't have to go and hang on a cross. What has he said? No, you know what? You just believe in me. You put your faith, your trust in what I have done for you. Well, let's, before we even read the text, I just want to review what we looked at last week quickly. The first point last week was religious people often miss salvation in spite of the prayers and deep concern of godly people, but we should pray anyway. See, if salvation is something that is of God and salvation is something that God does in your heart and you believe that the doctrine of predestination and election is all over the pages of Scripture, some people say, well, if God's got it all worked out, then we don't need to pray anymore. We don't need to do anything. Well, no, we, we still do. Because somehow God works through that. We should pray anyway. And that's what he said there in verse 1. He said, his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Don't you ever give up on praying for your lost loved ones. Or your neighbors or your friends who don't know Christ. God will honor those prayers. He'll open up windows of opportunity before you. So you can share the gospel with them again and again and again. Secondly, we said religious people often miss salvation in spite of their zeal for God because their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. That's what he said there in verse 2. He said they have a zeal. The Jewish folks have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're a little mixed up. It's kind of like somebody hit the pause button. You know, they never got to the cross. They're still back with all the works and the law. And that's even where some believers find themselves, unfortunately. And then the third thing we looked at last week was religious people often miss salvation because they do not know about God's perfect righteousness. And so they seek to establish their own. (laughs) Are you trying to establish your own righteousness? Because you know what? I'll tell you, I just, you know, cut right to the chase. You can't do it. It's not good enough. Jesus himself said, oh, you, you, you want to, you, you want to be like this? Okay, fine. Then you have to be perfect as my father is perfect. Wow. Anybody here perfect? Last time I checked, we aren't. We're far from it, beloved. So we need to trust in a righteousness that comes from our God and Savior. And then fourthly, we said religious people miss salvation when they do not trust in Christ as their own righteousness. 
Well, today we're at verse 5. And so I'm going to read verses 5 to 10 for us, and then we'll get into this a little bit. For Moses, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one professes and is saved. Today I want to talk to you about a righteousness that saves. A righteousness that saves. If you want a real simple title, you could just say, How to be saved. (laughs) What does the Bible say? How can we be saved? I know that some people, when they share their faith, they don't like to use words like saved or salvation because unbelieving people don't understand those. And so, you know, it's better to focus on the abundant life and tell them all the good things that Jesus can do for them. But when you start using words like salvation and being saved and, and even hell and things like that, you know, that kind of turns people off. Um, we need to tell people how Christ can give peace and love and joy and freedom from guilt and harmonious relationships and all the other blessings. Now, I'm the first one to tell you that the gospel brings incredible blessings into your life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God gives you an abundant life, a life that is far above anything you could ever even dream of or ask for. But let me be very clear. The main message of the gospel is not about all the blessings. The main message of the gospel is about being eternally saved or lost. In Romans 10, Paul uses salvation. He uses saved, those words. He uses them in verse 1. He uses it in verse 9. He uses it in verse 10. He uses it in verse 13. And so, you know, I don't want to shy away from the concept of salvation. What does that mean? Being right before God. It, it really permeates this whole chapter. And, and Paul keeps on coming back to it over and over. And he's hammering it home. He's been preaching it through the entire letter. All the way back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. That the only way to be right with God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by your good works. And you might say, well, why does he keep on repeating this? The answer is simply this, because as human beings, we are so prone to try to get saved by our own good works. We're so prone, even after we're saved, to put faith in our own good works, to look at our good works that we have, even after we're a Christian, and kind of lift ourselves up and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, look at me, I'm not like these other Christians. 
See, we need this message. We need it hammered into our hearts. We need it hammered into our minds because both are works-oriented. There's a very practical issue here, though, as well in these verses. It's so practical and so simple, you might even not see it. You might overlook it. But I think... Overall, what Paul is saying is that, you know what? At this moment, right now, as we sit here at, what time is it? 10.50, July 24th, 2017. 16, sorry. said I was looking forward to the future earlier. But as we sit here right now, in this time, in this place, you know what? Either you are eternally saved or you are eternally lost. Hear me. Either you are eternally saved or you are eternally lost. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a sobering thought. To think right now there's probably people in this room who are eternally lost. That if Christ came back right now and we were raptured out of here, there would be people still left here. It's so important, Paul keeps on asking this question. There's no in-between. You don't have one foot in heaven and one foot out. There's no in-between. There's no other group. Either you're saved or you're not. If you're saved, it means that if you died today, you would spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Forevermore. We're not talking a few weeks. We're not talking a few years. We're talking eternity. Forever. But if you're lost here today and you died, you would spend eternity in the torment of hell under God's righteous judgment. I don't know about you, but I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody. Those are the only two options. You know, that word save, salvation, that's really, it's it's a radical term. It's a radical word. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, you know what, life, I'm doing pretty good in life. Got a good job and whatever, looking at good retirement and health-wise, I'm okay. Maybe you don't sense the need to be saved here this morning. If you think you're basically a good person and that your goodness will get you into heaven when you die, then you know what? You don't feel you need to be saved. If you think that Jesus came just to give us a few tips on how to live a happy, happy life, then you know what? You don't realize your true condition before a holy God. See, the Bible gives us every indication the reason we need to be saved, beloved, is because we're perishing. We're on a way into eternity, a destiny that is a place you would not want anyone to go to. A place called hell. And hell is not a place where you go and hang out with your buddies and have a party for all eternity. No. The Bible describes hell as a place of utter darkness, utter torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not for a few days, not for a few hours, not for a few weeks, not for a few months, not for a few years, for all eternity. We're blessed with a 
uh, a gift to go on a cruise. And so my wife and I went on this cruise to the Mexican Riviera earlier this year and, and it had a wonderful time. It was 10 days, I think. But the first day, and those of you who've been on a cruise, you know what they do. First day, you go, you get your bags, you get in your room, and they say, you got to report to this room. You're not allowed to miss this meeting. Okay, whatever. So we went down and saw this giant, probably held 1,500, 2,000 people, this giant uh, kind of auditorium. And I'm thinking, all right, well, this is a pretty big deal. You know, everybody gets in there, and, and the staff comes out, and hey, you know, if you're not going to listen to anything else, for the entire 10 days, we ask that you would listen for the next 15 minutes. Because this could mean the difference between your life and your death. And we're going, oh, why do we go on this cruise? <laughs> you know, it's like, this is a nice way to start the cruise off. And, you know, you could tell the people that were on the cruise before. You know, they're kind of casual. You know, I'm like hanging on every word, man. I want to know what's, you know, they give you these life thing, things you put around you, you got to put it on and show them you can do it and all this stuff. I'm thinking, that's kind of a pretty big deal. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, okay, you know, it's not probably that important. I don't think the boat's going to sink. Yes, exactly. There was a ship over in the Mediterranean Sea. Remember what happened to that? I mean, if, if, if someone would have come into the hall and, or into the dining hall, even that evening, and said, get into the lifeboats now. Put your, I mean, most of the passengers probably would have said, you know what, this is a joke. They probably wouldn't have believed it. They thought, probably would have thought you were crazy. But if that cruise ship, like the one in the Mediterranean did, hit a rock, began the listing, took on water, all of a sudden, what's happening? The boat's going down. Well, all of a sudden, that stupid little life thing you got to put around your neck that's kind of uncomfortable, all of a sudden, that's kind of important, isn't it? And when they say, hey, report to the, the, the stations where you've got to, you know, you're going to make sure you take that thing out of the closet in your, in your room and take it with you. You're not going to go there without one. Why? Because you understand what lies in the balance. See, life may be going just smooth as pie right now for you. But you know what? If you're not right before a holy God, then you need to be saved. See, the truth is, your boat is going to hit a rock. All of our boats are going to hit a rock one day. That rock is called death. And you need to be ready for that inevitable moment that's going to come. <clears throat> Because when it comes, it doesn't announce it's coming. It doesn't say, oh, you know, Tuesday at 10 o'clock, Steve, you're going to have a heart attack and be with the Lord. You're going to go home. So you might want to think about getting things in order before Tuesday. It doesn't happen that way. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke said in 1910, for the son of man has come and to seek what? That which is lost. Indicating some things are lost. Luke in 532 says, I have 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Now, when he said that, he wasn't implying that there were some righteous. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, you know what? Everybody is unrighteous and there needs to be a savior. There needs to be salvation. See, unfortunately, some today mistakenly think that they are righteous enough to get into heaven by their own works. But the truth is simply this. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory, and all deserve judgment. That's scripture. That's what the Bible says. So we need Jesus to save us from that judgment. So today, as we look at our outline... To be saved, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself. And you must truly believe in Jesus as the risen Savior and Lord. Now, here in Romans 10, Paul is dealing with this question that dominates chapters 9 through 11. As I said, if the Jews are God's chosen people, why are most of the Jews rejecting Christ? And in chapter 9, Paul pointed out to us that it was never God's eternal purpose to save each individual Jew. Rather, his purpose was to save a remnant. He chose who would be saved. His gracious choice. The emphasis clearly was on God's sovereignty in salvation. All throughout chapter 9. But if God is sovereign, then those who are unbelievers, is it right for them to point their finger at God and say, well, if you're sovereign and you didn't choose me, that's why I'm in hell because you didn't choose me. See, that's what some people thought, even in Paul's day. That somehow they weren't responsible for their own unbelief. They were blaming God for missing out on salvation. And so from chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through chapter 10, Paul argues that the Gentiles attained righteousness because they attained righteousness that came from faith. Where the Jews were lost because they sought to establish their own righteousness by works. It says there in verse 4, they didn't trust in Christ who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They didn't trust in that. Their sinful pride kept them from salvation. Don't allow that to happen to you here today. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 5 to 10, what Paul does is he lays out a contrast for us. He says, you know what? There's a righteousness that's based on the law that's not going to get you anywhere. And there's a righteousness that comes through faith. And to be saved by keeping the law, you must keep it perfectly. Which was never God's intent. God gave us the law not to save us, but to show us our need for a Savior. I mean, he painted the line so high on the wall that none of us could attain to it, ever. And what that should do is drive us to our knees and say, God, there's no way I could ever do this. That's when he says, that's exactly where I want you. You're right. You need to be saved. But instead... There's so many people, even within the church, that rather than just going to their knees and admitting they can't touch the line that God has painted on the law, on the wall, they try everything within their power. They jump, they hop, they skip, they bring things and try to build towers up to that line to try to meet God's standard.
To be saved, you have to trust in what God has done in sending his son to die for your sins. He raised him from the dead. Salvation, Paul's message here, is not by keeping the law, but by faith in Christ. First point, to be saved, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself by keeping God's law. For Moses writes that the man who practices, verse 5, the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. That little word for there at the beginning of the verse shows that Paul is explaining verse 4. He says verse 4, and then he says, let me explain what I mean. What's he doing? He's referring all the way back to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. What that verse says is this. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So you look at that and you're kind of confused. You're going, well, wait a minute. It says if we, we should keep these things. Well, in that verse, live does not refer to eternal life, but rather to enjoying God's blessing in the promised land. See, Paul here When he uses the word life, it's really the equivalent to justification or righteous standing before God. Over in the book of Galatians that he he wrote to a group of people who are dealing with a lot of legalistic tendencies. And in Galatians chapter 3 verses 11 to 12, Paul cites the exact same verse out of Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. And he, he does so to contrast the attempt to approach God by keeping the law... With the way of faith. He says, I want to draw you a contrast here. And he says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 and 12. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, Paul says. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And then he adds down in verse 21 and 22 there of, of Galatians, he says, is the, law then prime, is, the, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise of faith in Christ in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe he's making the same point in Romans 10:5 if you want to gain eternal life by keeping the law you have to obey it perfectly and as paul just stated the jews were trying to establish their own self-righteousness by works of the law i mean even paul the apostle paul went down that road He tried to do that. And he concludes after he became a believer in Philippians chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. He he lays out all the experience that he's had. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church, he says. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But what does Paul do when he's converted? Paul counts everything, all those credits that he just listed. His big pedigree before he became a Christian. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 9 in Philippians to explain the contrast. 
And he says, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul made the same point back in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. He also talks about that in James chapter 2, verse 10. So even though Scripture is abundantly clear, this is the main reason that people do not trust in Christ for salvation. They think somehow they can still save themselves by being good or by keeping God's law. I mean, if you want to be honest, just admit it. You know, we've all broken God's law several times over. Both outwardly and inwardly. We've all failed to love God with with all of our hearts. We've all failed to, to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And so Paul explains in Romans 3, 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and that the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law was to point us to our need for a savior. To show us our own sinfulness. So to be saved, you first have to recognize that you cannot save yourself by keeping God's law or by conjuring up your own righteousness. Secondly, to be saved, you must recognize that Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. You have to come to that term. You have to come to that point. Romans chapter 10, verses 6 to 8, he says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, these are kind of odd verses, to be honest with you. We don't have the time or, or even the, the ability to, to delve into these. I mean, you read commentaries on this, and everybody comes up with a different thing, but I'm going to try to explain it the best I can. That opening word there, but, shows that Paul is contrasting the righteousness based on the law with the righteousness based on faith. And he cites out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, and also chapter 9, verse 7. He says, do not say in your heart, And then he kind of paraphrases Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14. See, his main point here is that God has always offered salvation by faith apart from human merit, from human effort, even under the law. But when you read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14, it seems to say that keeping the law is within the reach of every person, that somehow it's within your ability to do it. And what Paul is doing is he cites them for an opposite meaning. That salvation has nothing to do with human effort, is what he's trying to get across. But rather, that God has provided everything so that all we must do is believe in Christ. 
Well, first of all, in Deuteronomy 8 and 9 there, the references that he talks about, Moses is really warning Israel that when they take possession of the land of Canaan, they must not think that they have earned it because of their own righteousness. That's what he's pointing out. Don't think you got here based on your own ability. And that clues us in that God's blessing come to us not based on our own merit, but based on God's what? God's grace. Not by our own effort. And then Paul adds this Deuteronomy 30 reference. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it, nor is it beyond the sea, it says in Deuteronomy, that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. The it refers to the commandment of the law being near. But Paul, what he does is he replaces the commandment with Christ being near. Moses is is promising here that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. That's what he says in in Deuteronomy 36. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all um, that you may live. And then it's important to understand that this is kind of the the aspect of, of the new covenant. See, these promises point to God's forgiving our sins, that God giving us new life in Christ by grace alone. It's not pointing us back to the law. Because, beloved, it's only when God changes your heart that you are fully able to obey God's commands. You have to be transformed. And even then, we don't do it perfectly. So why does Paul replace this commandment in Deuteronomy 30, referring to the law with Christ? The answer is found in verse 4 of Romans 10. He says, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. See, you, you have to go back and you have to understand the simple fact that Jesus did what no one else could ever do. Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he did something no one else could ever do. He perfectly fulfilled God's holy law. He did so by his death. When he did that, he satisfied the penalty of the law that we deserved. So when you believe in Christ, God is able to impute the righteousness of Christ to your account. He gives you his righteousness because he realizes you don't have any of your own. And as a Christian, God looks down and he views you as perfectly fulfilling the law even though you fail. How can he do that? Because he's, he's seeing the righteousness of Christ. It's so important that we understand to be saved, you must recognize that what Christ has done for you, you could never do for yourself. See, God did all that when Christ came down here on earth, the incarnation Christ came to bear the curse of the law on our behalf, Galatians 3.13 says. And so when you stop and you think about this, it's, it's so important that, you know what, we don't need to go down 
into the abyss and, and drag Jesus back up from the dead. Why? Because Christ is our, or God has already done that. It's already completed. The work of the cross is done. So what Paul's point here simply is this, that human effort is not necessary to get a hold of God's righteousness. God has done it all. He sent Christ. Christ is sufficient to save us from our sins. Christ died for our sins. God raised him up from the dead for our sins as proof of his payment. See, all that we must do, beloved, is believe in this word that Paul is preaching. The fact that when he says there in verse 8, the word is near you, means that you don't have to go through some bunch of gymnastics or incredible process to be saved. Because God will do that for you. God will save you when you cry out to him. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. You don't have to go through some lengthy rigmarole. You can simply believe in him, and at the moment you do, you will be saved. Don't get lost in all these difficulties in this verse. And miss the application of what I'm trying to get across. When you die and you stand before God, either you will argue that you should get into heaven because you're a good person. Or as the hymn writer wrote, you will say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, God in Christ did for you what you could never have done for yourself. So abandon all your efforts. Give up. It's time to humble yourselves and to realize, you know what? You need to trust in Christ. Last point here. To be saved, you must truly believe in Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart of man... A person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's interesting because in verse 9, Paul really follows the order of what he's citing out of Deuteronomy 30. Verse 8, your mouth, your heart, he says. Verse 10, he explains verse 9. First, believe in the heart, and then the heart Belief finds outward expression in confession with your mouth and with our lives. You know, true faith is a matter of your heart. That's where it begins. Relying on specific contact regarding Jesus as a crucified and risen Savior. Paul uses this word faith or belief. He uses it in chapter 9, verses 30, 32, 33. He uses it in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 4, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 14. He uses it two times in verse 14. He uses it in verse 16. He also uses it in verse 17. He argues here in these verses that Paul is giving us a definition of saving faith. Showing both the content and the character of it. Clearly understand what I'm saying. There are not two requirements for salvation. 
That's not what Paul was saying. Paul is not saying that you have to believe and you have to confess. That's not what he's saying. That's not what the text is saying. Rather, the repeated emphasis on faith shows that faith is the only requirement. As Paul told the Philippian jailer in response to his question, what must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, what did Paul reply to him? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will what? You will be saved. It's not rocket science. You don't have to have a theological degree to understand this stuff. It's pretty bottom shelf information. Outward confession of Christ is the inevitable outcome or character of genuine saving faith. True saving faith is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what's going on in here. It's not just a matter of intellectual assent. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he's Lord. (laughs) You may believe the facts of the gospel as God has revealed in his words. That's fine. But unless he has transformed your heart, unless he has touched you down deep within and has saved you, all the knowledge in the world will not save you. The facts include that we have sinned and we stand guilty before God. He sent Jesus, his eternal son, to take on human flesh. I mean, just think of that for a second. You're God in heaven. And now your assignment is to go down to this earth, the sinful earth, Take on a human body. And you're God? Really? He did all that. And then he went and he died as our substitute on the cross. God raised Jesus bodily from the dead, showing that God the Father accepted Jesus' death as a satisfactory offering. The word Lord is used a lot. In the Old Testament, it refers to God. Confessing Jesus as Lord basically means that believing that he is the sovereign God. You must understand and believe this content of the gospel in order to be saved. You can't be saved believing that Jesus is not God. Sorry, the Jehovah Witnesses have it all wrong. If they don't believe that Jesus is God and you're trying to press them into a decision for Christ, we got a problem. That's premature. They don't have the right thinking. They wouldn't know who they were trusting in. Sharing the gospel means sharing the complete counsel of God with someone. Not just the good part that makes them feel good. So when we read the Gospel of John and you ask God to show people who Jesus is, that's what I do when someone isn't a Christian and they say, well, how do I find out? You know what? Do you have a Bible? Yeah, I got a Bible. Or maybe they don't. I'll give them a Bible. Take this home and start reading the Gospel of John. And as you read the words on those pages, you ask God to reveal himself to you. And then we'll, if you have questions, you write them down. We'll come back and we'll talk about them. See, if they don't believe the, in the Jesus of the Bible... They're not saved. They're not saved. We're we're guilty, beloved, of creating God, recreating God in our own imagination. How many times when you share the gospel with somebody, do you hear, well, you know, that, that doesn't sound fair. My God's not like that. I have a God of love. 
What have they done? They've recreated God to to meet their own needs. And that God will not save them. When you think of the Mormon faith, you think of Jehovah Witnesses. They believe in a false, a made-up Jesus. And that faith will not save them. I don't care how well they run their families or how good they care for their people or, or how religious they may seem. Saving faith is based on the truth about Jesus as received in God's word. But that saving faith is also a heart response to the facts. When you believe that the sinless Son of God bore God's wrath fully for your sins on the cross, it affects your heart. I mean, think about it. If somebody gave up their life to save yours, do you think that might affect you a little bit? I think it would. I think you'd be forever touched. You would be moved by that act of self-sacrifice. See, faith includes committing your eternal destiny totally to Christ's death for your behalf. Not to any works of righteousness that you have done. Committing yourself to Christ includes repentance, which means turning from your sin to the Savior, submitting to Jesus as Lord of your life. You know, the whole idea that... (laughs) I mean, some people say, well, you can come to Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. I'm so sick of other Christians. Well, you know, you just need to make Jesus Lord of your life. What does that even mean? Who are we to make God anything? The correct statement would be, you know what? You need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your life. Big difference. Second thing under this point is true faith confesses openly that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. Faith is the root. Confession is the fruit. Just think of it that way. Faith is the root. Confession is the fruit. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But if our faith is genuine, it will always bear fruit. It will always bear fruit. James talks of demons who believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus, yet their faith is not saving faith. Why? Because it did not result in repentance and good works. One of the first ways a new believer should confess Christ as Lord and Savior of their life is to be baptized, biblically. To be immersed in these waters up here, share your testimony with people. You're accounting that God has changed your life. Yet I know Christians who are believers who are not baptized. They won't get baptized. And you wonder, where is their faith? See, in that culture, when you would be baptized in the name of Christ, usually that meant that you would sacrifice your own family. They wouldn't have anything to do with you anymore. You'd lose any social contact with anybody. If you had a business, that went under because nobody would frequent your store because you were a Christian. So you should take baptism very, very seriously. And after baptism, we go on confessing 
Christ by living in a manner that pleases Him. By growing in our love, in our obedience to Him, by trusting in Him through the trials that come into our life. And also by telling others about His wonderful works of of salvation. That they could be saved too. We don't do that perfectly, but that should be our goal. The outcome of such faith and confession on Christ on earth will be hearing Jesus confess us before our Father in heaven, Matthew 10 tells us. Please don't leave here this morning thinking that somehow you're a pretty good person, that you don't need to be saved. Think of it this way. Jesus did not give up the glory of heaven and suffer the agonies of the cross so that you could have your best life now. That's not why he did that. He didn't die primarily so that you could have a happy family. He didn't die primarily so that you could succeed in your business ventures. Beloved, he died on that cross to save you from your sins. And he will save you if you recognize that you can't save yourself. And you truly believe in him as your Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for these words this morning. Lord, we pray that our heart would break over those who have yet to come to Christ. That as believers, we would continue to pray for their salvation. That you would somehow transform their heart. Even the hardest of hearts. Lord, you are perfectly capable of of softening just like butter in a microwave. And Lord, you, you can do it supernaturally. And Lord, part of our process in that is keeping those unsaved loved ones and family members and neighbors and friends in prayer, asking you to open up doors where they will hear the truth, that they will be transformed by your glorious gospel. Father, help us to realize that our salvation is not based on our own works, but it's based on on the work of Christ and your grace and our, our faith and trust in that. Father, I pray for any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I ask that you would minister your grace to their heart. Show them their need of a, of a, of a, a Savior. Help them to turn from their sin. And that you would allow the righteousness of Christ to flow into their life. And give them a joy and a peace that they have never experienced before. Just allow them to cry out, even this morning, in the quietness of this moment, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. I need to be saved. That's a prayer God will answer if it's prayed from a sincere heart, a humble heart. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.